Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Smart Muslima Podcast. My name is Farhat Amin. I'm your host. Have you subscribed? It only takes a minute and if you do, you'll never miss an episode again. Love the podcast? Well, please leave a review on whichever platform you are listening on and why not share it on WhatsApp or Instagram? My handle is farhatameen underscore UK. So please go ahead and follow me and share it with your friends, inshallah. Today's topic will be about colonialism and feminism. This will be an episode where we're exploring the effect of feminism in the Muslim world and how it was used as a tool by um, occupying forces in the past and in the present. So let's begin. When Western governments colonized the Muslim world, they understood that the only way to defeat Muslims was to get them to believe they were superior and that their ideas were superior. If you imagine occupying forces in Muslim countries, whether that be India, Egypt, um, or Algeria, the, the occupying forces, whether that's Britain or France, they faced resistance, um, physical and military resistance, of course, um, from the, the men. And then you also had, um, there was a resistance to adopt their ideas. We had our own beliefs, we had our own culture, our own um, set of values, you know, ways of doing things. And they knew that what they had to do, if they were really going to break this resistance, they needed to make the Muslim women who were the mothers, the homemakers, you know, the educators of the next generation, they had to get through to them. And the problem that they faced was that the women in our societies, one, they were covered, and also men and women did not mix freely the way they do in their societies. So, you know, you had your families where you would be with your mehram, 
and you would um, socialize, you would do things. But then in the public sphere, you had, you know, men and work did not, men and women, should I say, did not mingle in work, you know, or in play the way they did. So they had to find a way to get through to the women. And really, when you look at the language, when I'm going to run through the examples, the language really shows how they felt that they were taming us. We were savages and they had to civilize us. And when they used the word liberation, it was they wanted to liberate us from Islam. That was their ultimate plan. And again, these are, I will um, uh, mention the books that I got the information from, and I would highly recommend that you read them. Inshallah, as you may be aware, we've started a book club on Goodreads. It's called the Thinking Muslim Book Club. I would love you to join because all the books there, I will be putting them up as suggestions every two months, inshallah. Let's begin by looking at the experience of Muslim women in Egypt. Now, Lord Cromer was the British Consul General in Egypt from 1883 to 1907. He was convinced that the uh, Islamic religion and society were inferior to Western civilization. And um, this is chronicled in the book by Layla Ahmed um, called Women and Gender in Islam. So what she details is that um, Cromer, he was, um, he believed that um, the Egyptian society um, faced a fatal obstacle. And this fatal obstacle was Islam, basically. And um, this is a direct quote. Um, The attainment of that elevation of thought and character, which should accompany the introduction of Western civilization. What he was saying was that Egyptian people and women in particular, well, they will only achieve elevation uh, once Western civilization is introduced to them. And he believed that the Egyptians should be persuaded or forced, his words, to become civilized, in quotes, by disposing of the veil, i.e. the covering. So this was his view of liberation, that he was this um, Western, secular, liberal man who must go there, and it's his job as the occupier to civilize the um, Egyptian society. And he, he really did make it his project to do his best to get Muslim women to remove the veil and and therefore and and he used the language of feminism and really as a tool to achieve his colonialist aims and it's very when you read about what he did and um, how he influenced um, for example there was a man called Ghassim Amin he was a French ed- so he was an Egyptian he was a French educated lawyer and um Lord Cromer instructed him to write a book called The Liberation of Women. This is in 1899. And um, Qasim Amin was also um, the founder of the liberal, uh, well, he led the Arab Liberal Party. And so what Qasim Amin did was, was, you know, having an occupier say these things to the women is one thing, but when you have a, you know, a Muslim saying these, it's more palatable to, to, you know, his fellow citizens. But he was so submissive in his praise for the West and harsh in his denunciation of the Muslims and Islam in Egypt. 
Amin argued that Muslim societies had to abandon their backward ways and follow the Western path of civilization to achieve success. So this is the type of thinkers and and, and, I, and ideas that were being um, propagated at that time. What's really interesting is that Lord Cromer was only playing lip service to the idea of feminism uh, because back home in England, hypocritically, Cromer founded and presided over the Men's League for Opposing Women's Suffrage. So he was against women in England attaining the vote, which then makes you wonder, again, you know, that it was hair feminism, uh, feminist ideas were just being used by a colonialist to further the interests of, um, of you know, British foreign policy in Egypt. So this is something I thought it's so important for us to understand our history, what was being told to us, and be able to sift the the truth from the lies. And there, um, but again, what is you know quite sad is when you have people like Ghassim Amin, and you have modern day um, you know Ghassim Amins that exist that do exactly the same thing. That they are the um, mouthpieces for governments, and we'll look at the example of um, George Bush in a minute. But I wanted to also look at now the example of um, the French occupation of Algeria. Now, this was a terrible time in the history of the Muslims of Algeria. The Algerian war took place during 1954 to 1962. And this was a resistance war to um, expel the French occupiers in Algeria. And during that time, they committed the most heinous atrocities. Anyone who's from Algeria will, will tell you about, you know, the, the truth of what happened. So I've been reading this book. It's really interesting. It's called Do Muslim Women Need Saving by Leila Abulagud. Now she's a um, Muslim and she's an anthropologist and she's very well known for her research that she did in Egyptian villages where she lived with Egyptian women. And what she was writing about was culture, um, their religion, their lives. And so she gave a very realistic um, portrayal of the lives of Muslim women in Egypt. Now, she then wrote this book, Do Muslim we Women Need Saving, after being asked to come on to talk about Muslim women and culture uh, when after 9-11. Now, um, she wasn't happy with the way that the American media and the American government, that Bush was in charge at that point, um, how they were using this narrative of the oppressed Muslim woman to justify the bombings in Afghanistan. Now, I'll come back to that in, in a little while, but what I would like to speak about again is Algeria and the experience of the Muslim women there under French occupation. Now, in her book, she states that one 19th century French official said, if we are to strike against Algerian society's capacity to resist, then we must first of all conquer their women, adding we have to go and find these women under the veils they hide behind. The French did nothing to help North African women. They had unveiling campaigns during the Algerian war under the pretext of liberating women. However, how are mass rapes 
incarceration in brothels, how is that liberating the Muslim women of Algeria? This is all factually, you know, you can read this for yourself or speak to any, as I said previously, any Algerian Muslim who knows about their history. And the real purpose behind these rapes and um, brothels was um, to demoralize the Algerian men, the men who were resisting the, the French occupation. Nobody asked, did anyone ask these Muslim women, do you want to take off your veils? Did they ask them, do you want to be prostitutes in our brothels? You know, this is the um, harsh reality of what really happened. And again, the more, you know, knowledge is power. When we read about these things, as I'm reading about these things, it makes me realize that, you know, the slogans and the propaganda of liberal Western democracies and how they use the idea of feminism, which, you know, if you look at all the episodes we've have had in this season where I've covered feminism, I've tackled this different aspects. But I think this one is the most um, disingenuous. It's um, we could say, is it just men that are using this, and it's and it's been misappropriated by by men? But we'll see that women will do this just as much. It's not that again. This is another arm of the patriarchy. It's what I'm saying here is that liberalism uses ideas. They they create these ideas and then they want to give them to us. But look at how they have given the feminism to us in, in the Muslim world. It, it has not been. Um, it's not been a pretty picture at all. And it really doesn't, it doesn't, um, the reality doesn't fit with the, the slogans. There's a moral crusade, I think, to save Muslim women or to rescue them from their culture, from their religion. You know, nobody I've ever met and worked with in these rural communities in Egypt or elsewhere ever envied Western women. They envied the lack of poverty that they thought existed. They envied certain kinds of things, but they were very happy to be Muslims. It was very important to them for their self-understanding, for their way of coping in the world. One of the ways that I think that moral crusade is authorized is through really the very the high moral ground of human rights, uh, international women's rights. There are these cultural legal categories that have been created through the UN, through uh, a whole range of means to give a name to certain kinds of violence. You can see it so clearly in Europe, again, where Germany, Scandinavia, there's been a huge production of the honor crime. And I think that feeds into a larger politics uh, and makes it believable and makes people feel morally you know, compelled to support certain kinds of interventions that they might not have otherwise. And so the question is, how can we see what we could do to make people's lives better elsewhere besides rescuing them from their cultures? Let's look at what we're doing that's making women's lives in Afghanistan so difficult. If you've got you know, this incredible poverty, you've got this militarism, you've got people with guns everywhere, you've got really terrible problems there now. Uh, women are deeply affected by that, and part of that is our responsibility. So that's the part we could work on. That was Leela speaking about her research and her book. I'd also like to just read out um, a part from her book. It's an introduction. Now she says, on a bright December day in 2010, I was having tea with Zainab, a woman who lives in 
a village in southern Egypt. As we caught up on each other's news, she politely asked me about the subject of my new research. I explained that I was writing about how people in the West believe that Muslim women are oppressed. Zainab objective, but women are oppressed. They don't get their rights in so many ways, in work, in schooling. I had known her for many years. I was surprised by her vehemence. But is the reason Islam, I asked? They believe that these women are oppressed by Islam. It was Zainab's turn to be shocked. What? Of course not. It's the government, she explained. The government oppresses women. The government doesn't care about the people. It doesn't care that they don't have work or jobs, that prices are so high that no one can afford anything. Poverty is hard. Men suffer from this too. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. End of quote. So I just found that to be, you know, when you hear it from, you know, these are women speaking about how they really feel rather than someone saying, oh, this is why they they have problems. And, And what we see the narrative is Islam is the reason. But I think for many of us, you know, you know, whether I think of people in my friends, my family, people I know back home in Pakistan, Islam is not the problem. It it is our governments. Everyone knows that, and it's not a. Um, there isn't too much Islam in our countries. It's the lack of Islam that is the problem here. Um, that is causing Muslim women to suffer because, as we know, and I and uh, I will discuss this in a future episode, that Mus- Allah gave us rights. The Quran, it's there. Our rights are there. We're not given them. We can't um, access them. Sometimes in Muslim countries in particular, because our, they're not there in the law. There's nothing backing up. There's no government. There's no crime and punishment there to back up anyone who takes away those rights of women that Allah, that Allah has you know, blessed us with. Let's take a look at what happened in Afghanistan. Now, in 2001, after 9-11 happened, America, under the presidency of George Bush, decided that they were going to bomb Afghanistan. And the reason why that was is that they said that um, the Taliban government was um, had Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan, and they and he, their government refused to give him up to the Americans. So they wanted to bomb Afghanistan. And now one of the justifications that they used was that um, by doing this, they would um, uh, be liberating the women of Afghanistan. So. Um, Laura Bush, the, George Bush's um, wife, 
she then um, did a speech. It was a very famous speech. And it was actually the address, it was the radio address that normally the president would do. And in that um, address, she, um, she she said a number of things. Let, let's actually have a listen to um, part of that speech. Good morning. I'm Laura Bush, and I'm delivering this week's radio address to kick off a worldwide effort to focus on the brutality against women and children by the Al-Qaeda terrorist network and the regime it supports in Afghanistan, the Taliban. That regime is now in retreat across much of the country, and the people of Afghanistan, especially women, are rejoicing. Afghan women know, through hard experience, what the rest of the world is discovering. The brutal oppression of women is a central goal of the terrorist. Long before the current war began, the Taliban and its terrorist allies were making the lives of children and women in Afghanistan miserable. Seventy percent of the Afghan people are malnourished. One in every four children won't live past the age of five because health care is not available. Women have been denied access to doctors when they're sick. Life under the Taliban is so hard and repressive, even small displays of joy are outlawed. Children aren't allowed to fly kites. Their mothers face beatings for laughing out loud. Women cannot work outside the home or even leave their homes by themselves. On face value, it seems like Laura Bush genuinely cares about the women of Afghanistan. And maybe she does. I'm, I'm not questioning that. But what I'd like to look at is the, the facts of after the occupation of Afghanistan, you know, when America, you know, uh, you know, bombed Afghanistan, over 111,000 Afghans were estimated to have been killed in the conflict. And that's from the Cost of War Project. And they estimated that the number who have died through indirect causes related to the war may be as high as 360,000 additional people based on a ratio of indirect to direct deaths in contemporary conflict. These numbers do not include those who have died in Pakistan. So that's not because, you know, Pakistan has a border with Afghanistan. So in total, 360,000 Muslims and non-Muslims, but major we know the majority of Muslims, they have died. And that speech sounded very nice, but included in that 360,000 are women, that they have died, women, children, who had nothing to do whatsoever with the 9-11 attacks. However, they have been punished. And then regarding what what is it like in Afghanistan now, well, the Taliban are still in charge. And um, it's interesting that Laura Bush wrote a book called We Are Afghan Women. This is in 2001. And when she was doing the publicity for this, she still said, I think we need to keep the troops there. Um, and, you know, we need to make sure that Afghanistan has the security to be able to build stability. Obviously, the most important thing is the security and our troops can help on that. I haven't even detailed the atrocities committed by the American soldiers on the people of the again, it's there's a catalogue of rapes, of um, you know, murder of of there's no um, you know, and there's no the, the people of Afghanistan, they they can't take these people to court, they can't 
say to them, you know, look at what you have done to my country and we want you to, you know, to leave. But again, the way that it's, um, the way the media puts the way that it's spun is that we are saving the people of Afghanistan and in particular the women. So George Bush said this in 2002 in an address to the UN. He said, respect for women can triumph in the Middle East and beyond. The repression of women is everywhere and always wrong. And so it's, again, it's, it, there's a very interesting comment that Leila Ahmed in her book says that um, Bush used feminist language to denounce the indigenous culture and feminism has served as a handmaiden to colonialism. You know, it's done the, the work for it. And as she continues, whether in the hands of patriarchal men or feminists, the ideas of Western feminism essentially function to morally justify the attack on native societies and to support the notion of comprehensive superiority of Europe and, and the West. I would say that the idea of Western values being superior to Eastern values extends not only to Islam, but other religions and cultures. So India, China, Africa, feminists and liberals, they do believe that their view of women is superior to, you know, the, the cultures that I just mentioned. There are so many examples in, you know, in, you know, in movies and books I'll just think of one example of Homeland. Okay, this is relating to Muslims again. That in the later seasons, I haven't watched the whole series, but there's this CIA analyst, a blonde American woman, who she goes to Pakistan. And if you look at the poster, there's all the Muslim women are head to toe in black. And they're very passive and they're moving. And she, well, no, they're, they're still. Where she's, if you see her in the middle, she's active and beautiful and the red white and blue she really stands out and there is this idea of a white savior whether it's a man or woman but they're going to save the the women with their ideas now just looking at um the idea of um how generally women who are, who are not of the east how they are seen as backward and their problems are seen to be um they seem to have more problems than women in the US or America now in 2015 on international women's day uh, there was a global campaign a campaign was launched and um to tackle gender inequality and violence against women now at that time you know if you look at um this this seemed like a much needed campaign especially when you look at in the US military Rape and sexual assault is a major problem. So these are amongst the soldiers. In 2012, an estimated 26,000 rapes and sexual assaults took place. And keep in mind that only one in seven victims reports these attacks. So these are American soldiers, male soldiers, raping their fellow female soldiers or assaulting them. That's 26,000. In Britain after the financial crisis of 2008, domestic violence spiked dramatically and by 2012 had increased by 35%. Now, if we just take those two statistics, you'd say that the way that women are treated in 
the West, you know, I'm just going to use the West because it's easier. It's it's not fair. And um, of course, feminists would say, yes, we need to campaign for women in Europe and the West and also women in the third world. But what we need to realize is that the solutions that they are then giving us to our problems is more is what they already have. So they'll say, you need democracy, you need more freedom, you need more liberation. But haven't they already got that? This is what I'm thinking. And they still have these problems. So they've got equality in, so men can be soldiers, women can be soldiers. But look, 26,000 of them, and that's a, um, you know, a very low, that's not the true figure, are being raped. So is that what you want for our countries? Is, is that what we should be happy that, oh, thank you so much that you're coming and giving us this liberation so we can also have the problems that you have? Now, going back to this campaign that was launched in 2015, it was, it was backed by a large number of international organizations and the campaign was called India's Daughter. And it didn't address any of the issues in the UK or the US. India's Daughter is a British documentary film made by Leslie Udwin that tells the story of a brut brutal gang rape in Delhi in December 2012 th that led to the death of Joyti Singh, 23, a medical student. And the month-long street protests that followed demanded an end to violence against women. The campaign is tied to this film, which has been shown in numerous countries around the world and, um, you know, it has the support and backing of celebrities such as Meryl Streep and Frida Pinto. If you look at the issues included on the campaign website, it lists everything from rape to domestic violence, honour-based violence, child marriage, infanticide, I'm sure it includes FGM as well. But what's interesting is that the only time that white women in the West make an appearance as victims in this so-called global campaign is in the section on equality, where the wage gap between men and women in the US and UK are discussed. The section on rape doesn't mention rape in, in the US, either in the military or college campuses, where one in five women are raped. Instead, the focus is on war rape, and the examples given are Rwanda, Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Yugoslavia. Is it any wonder that the first goal of this campaign is to target 20 million school pupils and rural communities in India. You know, this is, it's very patronizing. And um, now the question we might ask is why is this campaign called India's daughter rather than America's daughter or the American problem? Because after all, not only is sexual violence against women a massive issue in this country, but also around the same time as the Delhi rape in Ohio, a 16-year-old girl was gang-raped and sexually assaulted by a group of men. Why didn't this case come uh, become the focus of a documentary and global campaign? What stands out to me is that the rape was filmed by a bystander who thought it was so normal. This is the rape of the Ohio girl. So normal and amusing for a young man to be, woman to be repeatedly raped that he posted it on YouTube. In the video, you hear him laughing hysterically and saying things like, she is so raped right now. And, you know, there's, there's more awful things that I don't really want to go into the, um, the details of. But um, 
You see, so the India's Daughter campaign says nothing about these first world problems. Instead, the message is that rape, sexual violence, and other forms of female oppression take place mainly in the third world. You know, although no, I'm not saying that no one talks about it at all, but I, I just wanted to give illustrate that example as, as another example of how patronizing um, liberalism is towards the Muslims and how, again, they keep saying to us, feminism is the solution, but it, feminism has not solved the problems for their own women. And I'm, and I'm not happy about that. I'm not, uh, this isn't any, I, you know, um, I don't want that to come across at all, but I, I'm just saying, please don't patronize us and give us solutions that don't work for your own people. Inshallah, my intention in this episode was to really explain the logic of imperialist feminism in the 21st century and show that it's shaped by really a deeply racist framework of the clash of civilizations, which is based on the idea that the West is a superior culture because it believes in democracy, human rights, secularism, freedom of speech, and a whole host of other liberal values, whereas the third world and the Muslim world is barbaric, misogynistic, and driven by religion, and illiberal. And so from that follows the white man's burden and the white woman's burden to intervene through any means necessary, including wars of colonization, to liberate the less fortunate Muslim women in particular in other parts of the world. The books that I've mentioned in today's podcast um, will all be posted up on the Goodreads book club that we that I've started. It's called um, Please Go On and Please Join. I'd love for you guys to join. It's um, you just go to goodreads.com and the name of the book club is The Thinking Muslim Book Club. And the the podcast episode here was actually the research I did for this was part of a session that I delivered. Um, when we're in, in the UK where we are doing the Thinking Muslims Guide to Liberalism. It's been a really, it's been a brilliant course that all the people that have come, I've, me and my husband have really enjoyed delivering it. And um, the attendees, alhamdulillah, have given um, excellent feedback. I'll put, we're going to have a new website called thethinkingmuslim.com. I'll have the, the link, that'll be up soon. But inshallah, if you have any questions about what I've spoken about today, please send me an email, info at farhatamin.com, and you can listen to all the previous podcast episodes on feminism at farhatamin.com. Inshallah, take care. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? 
Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.